Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care, and this week's podcast includes insights into the prevalence of stigma, both internal and external, in mental illness from clinicians who attended Psych Congress 2018. While strides have been made in understanding mental illness and mitigating stigma surrounding it, both internal and external stigma remains prevalent in many mental health disorders, including schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. In addition to affecting a patient's quality of life, stigma also carries with it barriers to positive clinical outcomes. Because of stigma, patients may be hesitant to seek help, isolate themselves, and resort to unhealthy behaviors all of which can affect access to treatment, medication adherence, and getting the disorder under control. A recent survey from the Cohen Veterans Network and the National Council for Behavioral Health found that more than half of Americans surveyed want mental health services either for themselves or for a loved one. However, among the 5,000 respondents, 17% said social stigma is a barrier to seeking effective mental health services, 30% reported that they have worried about others judging them when discussing seeking mental health services, and 21% have lied to avoid telling people that they have sought mental health services. Dr. Joseph McAvoy, a professor of psychiatry and health behavior at the Medical College of Georgia, explained the biggest barriers to mitigating internal stigma surrounding mental illness. The core feature of internalized stigma is shame. People have accepted harsh judgments, beliefs about themselves and internalized them. And one of the biggest barriers is that this leads to avoidance. And they don't seek treatment or help, uh, which might include efforts to engage them more in social groups, in activities, in peer support, in other ways to get them more social contact, to, to get people around them who say, we like you, you matter to us, you're, you're worth something. Efforts to give them some productive activity, be it volunteer work, uh, be it uh, sheltered workshop, be it uh, supported employment and periods of work in, in competitive employment. The most grinding, the most problematic aspect of internalized stigma and the shame it brings is this avoidance of failure, a failure to seek out others, to hide, uh, a failure uh, which leads to a, a failure to get the support you need to get out of internalized stigma. Now some people on the basis of feeling stigma may go into an actual depression and they lose energy, they lose initiative, they lose the ability to push through and, and do what needs to be done for them to feel better, and they may need pharmacologic or psychosocial treatment for that. But the, uh, I think the biggest problem with internalized stigma is, uh, is letting people get alienated, letting people get uh, isolated, and taking them away from the contacts they need to, to build up some stigma resistance, to understand they have value, to understand their, that they can lead productive lives, they can have social contacts, they can be happy. Even, you know, they have this 
um, mental illness. It wasn't their fault. They didn't cause it. We can manage it, and they can, they can do the things they want to do. In order to help mitigate stigma and ensure greater access to care and in turn positive outcomes, best practices have to be identified. Dr. McAvoy shared some of these best practices for addressing internal stigma. I think uh, the best practices for addressing internalized stigma start with really good clinical care. The intensity of assigned stigma is related to the severity of the illness, the intensity of the treatment needed, and the level of disability associated. If we can get someone early, detect an illness early, treat it well, move sequentially to achieving remission of psychopathology, then the evidence that they have a problem, the mark which leads the public to assign stigma to them, is made minimal. The, uh, if, if a person is in remission, it may not be at all apparent that he or she has a severe mental illness, and they may be treated quite well by others around them. There is no need whatsoever to tell people uh, to advertise that you have this or that severe mental illness if you're in remission. You're in remission. Go about your life. Whatever residual psychopathology there is, whatever residual internalized stigma or lack of stigma resistance is there, I think is, is much more effectively addressed by strengthening, expanding network of social contact uh, that, that a person has. Make this person uh, part of a social group, a church group, make sure you're supporting their links to their family, helping the family members in any way that, so that they can uh, be there for the patient. Mattering to others, very effective in reducing internalized stigma and uh, strengthening stigma resistance. Productive activity, some activity, you know, letting the family know that if they have a small business, if they have a house that needs chores done, if the patient is willing to and, and, and can engage in, in doing some productive activity at home, that will reduce internalized stigma. If we can get uh, folks into peer programs, into uh, supported employment programs, into other activities where they do produc productive work, that can reduce in, uh, internalized stigma and improve stigma resistance. Again, stigma resistance is not just the absence of some awareness of being stigmatized. It's the, well, okay, but I don't care. I am me, I am important. These people love me. I do this valuable stuff. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead a good life. I can have fun. It's not just important for clinicians to work with the patient. It's also essential for them to collaborate with the patient's family. Dr. McAvoy discusses. Collaboration between clinicians and family is crucial to every aspect of the care of uh, severe mental illness. The initial HIPAA programs designed to protect confidentiality and privacy, have unfortunately expanded incorrectly in the minds of many clinicians who feel very wary of talking, engaging uh, patients' families. Engagement of families reduces relapse risk in severe mental illness by approximately 50 percent. 
and engagement of family here. We're talking about sharing some information about the illness. You know, very non-private, non-secret information about this is a biological illness. Nobody caused it. Nobody's bad. Uh, it's important that the patient take her or his meds on a regular basis. It's important, you know, that we all tell them they're they're good folks, they're wonderful folks, and that uh, we give them opportunities to do things. Even if they don't seem that interested in going bowling with the family, get them to come along. Because then you may find 10 minutes into it that they want to play in, in, in the next game. Give, give, give them these kind of opportunities. Uh, family members sometimes uh, don't have the information they need. They, they think that if someone is not actively running right out and getting a job it's because they're lazy they you know they need to understand that the the illness makes some things difficult for patients and and, and it varies at different periods of the illness and different degrees of uh, successful achievement of remission when people are actively psychotic it's very disorganizing and confusing to be in highly stimulating environments. As you get that under control, you may have to deal with a bit of lack of motivation of starting stuff. But again, as I suggested, that does not mean people won't enjoy stuff if the family starts it and brings the patient along. Uh, the patient may not be able to say, let's organize a pizza party for tonight, but if you bring him or her to the pizza party, they may have a great time. So bring them along. There's nowhere near the number of staff we could use to help patients. As, and the funding for all of the staff is probably not coming in the near future. Why would we ignore and not utilize these people who often sit worrying in the waiting room or at home who hear nothing from clinicians? Why would we not be engaging them, telling them about you know, the biology, the pharmacology, the psychosocial strategies for maximizing this patient's happiness and function uh, and incorporate that as team members, as active participants in the care of this patient. The engagement of family members is unfortunately not as frequent and not as intense as it should be. They are a tremendous resource. They have to be instructed, trained, and supported and told how lucky the patient is to have them. You know, they're suffering too. They've seen a child get sick. They have medical expenses. They have extra burdens they wouldn't have if they didn't have a relative with uh, serious mental illness. We should tell them they are the treasures that they are and we should support them in every way we can and we should help them know how to be skillful members of the team helping this patient function at the best level she or he can. The survey from Cohen Veterans Network and the National Council for Behavioral Health also found that over half of Americans have tried to grin and bear it instead of seeing a doctor when feeling depressed or mentally unstable. To get more insight on stigma surrounding major depressive disorder in particular, we spoke with Dr. Michael Thace, a professor of psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. I think it's less, I think stigma is less prevalent today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And, and there have been efforts, including the National Institute of Mental Health's DART program in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, I think efforts of the pharmaceutical industry through direct-to-consumer advertisement is one way of kind of making treatments that are known to work 
more known to our, our to our patients. Nevertheless, people often still equate the term depression with weakness and and believe strategies like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or uh, um, uh, simply not take not telling anyone about it and hoping it'll go away uh, will will be remedies and and because some episodes of depression do remit without treatment the spontaneous remission rates are maybe as high as 30 or 40 percent across a year um, people if they do wait and see or just hope sometimes do get better but each month you suffer with depression each month it goes untreated your kids suffer your your job suffers because depression's the largest cause of presenteeism and, and absenteeism in the workplace. And so the, the impact of the illness tends to build, and in the long run, that makes it harder to treat. We also spoke with Dr. John Kane, professor and chairman in the Department of Psychiatry at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra, who discussed the prevalence of stigma surrounding schizophrenia. I, th I think stigma surrounding schizophrenia is still an enormous problem. I think it, it affects uh, the general public. They don't understand the illness. They, they often don't know what it is. They confuse it with multiple personality, for example. Um, people, many people assume that uh, schizophrenia is untreatable and people will not be able to, um, to improve and, and that's, that's untrue. Many patients do, do quite well with treatment. Uh, but there's also even stigma amongst uh, professionals. So I think even in the mental health community, we sometimes see a diagnosis of schizophrenia inordinately delayed because the clinicians would rather diagnose something else like bipolar illness. And as a result, sometimes the diagnosis of schizophrenia is not made as in, in, in as timely a way as it should be. So that's kind of, that's a different kind of stigma. Um, so it still is a big problem. While ADHD and bipolar disorder share many of the same symptoms and are often misdiagnosed, the prevalence of stigma surrounding each disorder varies greatly. Dr. Michael First, a professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, New York State Psychiatric Institute explains. The issue of stigma is interesting. I mean, all mental disorders in a way are stigmatizing, but there is uh, sort of a hierarchy of, of stigma here. Certainly, uh, one of the worst mental disorders stigma-wise is schizophrenia. Uh, if we look at ADHD and uh, bipolar disorder, I think of those two, it's a pretty clear contest that the least, less stigmatizing one is ADHD. I mean, if anything, it's gone the other way around. You know, kids like an ADHD diagnosis. They get the stimulants. They get extra time on tests. So ADHD has kind of become sort of the exception, the, you know, the exception against stigma of mental disorders. People commonly are happy to talk about having ADHD. Bipolar disorder, uh, while it's becoming less stigmatized, a number of very famous people have come out with their stories of having bipolar disorder. So the stigma is less than it may have been 20 or 30 years ago, but it's still a, a difficult diagnosis. One of the pro you know, issues of stigma in mental disorders is people with bipolar disorder can do crazy things. They've, you know, uh, the, the nature of being in a manic episode is to, you know, spit on your money and, and do, you know, so if people associate that behavior with the diagnosis, that's so part of the stigma carries with what the disorder could be. You know, ADHD, the worst, you know, being spacey uh, is kind of the worst association with ADHD, where the association with bipolar disorder is, is worse. So I think bipolar disorder, I think in, in a contest between the two, I think hands down bipolar disorder is more stigmatizing than ADHD. 
To learn more about stigma and mental health disorders, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. And you can get in touch with us by emailing info at AJMC.com or following us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And finally, if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.